You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, America. This is Pete Macca, your host for a veteran story on AmericasWebRadio.com. Thank you for joining us. My good friend Dan Turner is my guest today. His mother served as a Marine in World War II. His father served with the Navy Seabees in World War II. His older brother, brother, Michael Barry Turner, served in Vietnam with the United States Marine Corps. Michael had been in country less than a week when he lost his young life from a sniper's bullet during the 1968 Tet Offensive. Dan's perspective on service and patriotism is indeed unique, while at the same time heartbreaking. Dan, my friend, welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me today. Oh, glad to have you, sir. Let's just start with the basics, Dan. Tell the folks a little bit about where you were born, a little bit about your childhood, and where you were raised. Okay. Well, I was born in Michigan, Chelsea, Michigan, just outside of Detroit in uh, 1953. That's relevant. <laughs> but my family moved here in 1954. You're talking, about, in... Uh, you're talking about Georgia, right? Moved here to Georgia in 1954. Yeah. Okay. My dad had served the Navy Seabees with a fellow in the Aleutians by the name of Charles West, the West Lumber Company fam- family around here. And um, George West had uh, told Charles uh, that he had opened up a new savings and loans uh, by the name of First Federal Savings and Loans, and they had all this Veterans Administration money in order to uh, apply and he said, you know, call your CB buddies up and tell them to come to Georgia. I've got money for them, I've got property for them, and I've got lumber to sell them, which was a good deal for somebody. Yeah. <laughs> but we did come here and um, been here ever since. It's called it's my home now. All right. Yeah, your dad was a Navy CB in World War II. I got a lot of response from my flyer about this program. From I, I bet ten people said, hey, my dad was a CB. My dad was a CB. <laughs> Uh, your dad was on Guadalcanal. Let's talk about your dad a little bit and what he did with the Navy Seabees in World War II. Sure. Um, he had a good bunch of people to work with. Um, they went to the uh, Guadalcanal. They paved the roads so the Marines wouldn't get their feet wet when they came aboard. <laughs> and um, the cross-branch humor applies here to everything. Uh, it was a good bunch of people that went to Henderson Field to commandeer that area over there to turn it into an airstrip, fix things up to service the aircraft that are in between home and uh, their points of peril. Um, and doing that included all the infrastructure necessary to have people that were being housed there, which brought the CBs in to do all the grading for the repairing the runways and the shoulders and such and tarmacs and repairing the place at the park the planes and um, all the structures necessary for service as well as living quarters nearby and surrounding the area. Um, he had a lot of good friends and in, oh, I don't know, about 20 years ago he met up with a couple of guys and decided to put together a group called the Guadalcanal Campaign Veterans Society and um, they have a little museum up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, uh, just outside the airport. It's called the Kalamazoo Air Zoo, and the Guadalcanal Campaign Society is a museum full of 
artifacts and uh, old recordings, photos, um, souvenirs, uniforms, everything from that era, just to wow. validate that they were there, they had service, they did a number for their country in order to be able to prepare. It was a rough time there. And, um, well, I don't know, he, uh, before he left this world in 87, um, he had patron as a, a statue to be put together in order to be dedicated to his museum. And uh, he put this nice little bronze statue on a pedestal with a fellow who was kneeling down with his knee on his helmet. He's got a, a homemade cross and a bayonet, and he's carving to a pal on on the cross. So my dad had uh, you know, a simple way of explaining things, and you know, just that one little statue meant a world to the, these guys. That they all were pals, yeah. and they're all together for pretty much the last time for the majority of them. I think I'm probably the last of that group now. I was made an honorary member of. The campaigns, the Guadalcanal campaigns aside at that time, and um, unfortunately after all these years, like I said, I'm pretty much getting probably the last member of that group, so. I'll, I'll bet you probably are. Tell the folks about your dad trying to string a cable up to the top of the mountain. <laughs> yeah, they should have made a movie about this. Um, <laughs> one of the things that electricians made has to do with deal with cable, and um the, um, he was told to drag this huge spindle, this huge roll of cable, I'm talking about something as big as a truck, up to the top using this bulldozer. And I guess Dad decided, well, why don't it be probably easy we take the cable up to the top there and pull it down, you know, using the spindle up there on this roll in order to pull it down rather than try and tug <laughs> a couple thousand feet up a mountain. And um, so they got a couple of chains together and put them through the uh, loop of the, the roll and started rolling that uh, huge roll of cable up to the top of the mountain. And they couldn't have been more than 50 feet away from their goal up there when the, the cable snapped or the chain snapped. They lost control of the school. There was no controlling that. It was, you know, it was too big for anybody to stop rolling downhill, which it did. Downhill into the camp, through the church, into the lagoon. <laughs> uh, you know, kind of obliterated everybody's day, um, especially my dad, because he was responsible. And he got down there, and the commander said, you know, we'll be good if you can get this done in one half hour. Get that spool out of the lagoon and get that cable done in 30 minutes. Do it? Oh, yes, sir. And... Uh, as CBs are, they dropped what they were doing, and um, they came out, they fished the spool out. Actually, they got one end of the cable out, and they used the water and such in order to help uh, make it an easy process. They tied off the cable like they should have the first time and drove it up to the top of the hill with a bulldozer and uh, started setting things up within that 30 minutes. So that's the CBs. When they say can do, it's done. They do it. They do it. They, is they it true that the sea? Yeah. Is it true that the CBs were waiting for the Marines when the Marines landed on Guadalcanal? It's only a rumor, sir. Okay. <laughs> but I have pictures that show the signs of the, the CBs welcome the Marines. <laughs> 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 enjoy enjoy your CBs. stay. Yes. <laughs> 
tell the story about the uh, your father and a bunch of CBs were watching this guy on a big blade scraper, scraper runway, but uh, he just kept on going and didn't stop. Oh, my. That was such a sad tale, too. And um, I'd heard something about that. And, you know, it was just a discussion one time years and years and years ago. But then I read the article in the Guadalcanal Campaign Veteran Society newsletter. Um, and the details are pretty specific. It was a, uh, a guy was on a grater, which is one of the ugliest creatures ever manufactured. It's got the, the four tires in the back, the engines in the back, the uh, exhaust is in the back. The driver's kind of perched in the middle with a blade underneath that's the width of the, the, the tires and beyond. And um, they're used in order to smooth over large areas as if you were going to grade down a street or most anything. And um, this guy had the... Uh, the word that he was, you know, the, the runway is pretty well done up. They'd already graded everything down. They were doing compaction now, and uh, he was just to take care of this, this start building up the um, their shoulders on either side of the runway. And, um, you know, as they are, they don't really move that fast. And they got about halfway down the runway, and these guys are watching, and all of a sudden he veered off the, the shoulder went across the runway, broke up all that fresh dirt that had been compacted down there. But he kept going, and he was running probably first gear, so it wasn't too fast, but he you know, was just consistently going, but he was running now diagonally to where he started. And um, they all jumped in a Jeep, or they ran, and they, they were able to jump up and put a stop to it because what they found was that a uh, Tom Golden would love this. He's uh, a Jap had jumped up snuck up behind him because he couldn't hear anything because of the engine noise and he couldn't see anything because he's probably leaning over one side watching the blade where it stood for each pass and they took his head off while he was driving the damn thing and that's where they found him uh, the feet under controls and his hands one hand still on the steering wheel wow and uh well it was a um you know, it was a, not a wake-up because they'd already been through enough stuff here, but it's just to show you how close these guys were and, you know, how eager they were in order to take out whatever the, the troops we had on Guadalcanal. Wow. And your dad uh, didn't too much like Guadalcanal, the heat and everything else, so he asked for a transfer, and where did he go? Well, they sent him to the Aleutians, you know. You don't like the heat and humidity? <laughs> we'll send you someplace you will like. And... Uh, <laughs> So they sent him to the Aleutians, and um, he said, well, we don't have Japanese shooting at it, but, damn, we don't have any big brown bears that want to kill us anyhow. So, uh, <laughs> you know, wherever they went, there was somebody walking around strapped with a shoulder, uh, you know, they had a holster on, and um, and they had a big rifle in order to try and take one out as soon as they could. They spotted one uh, charging. So uh, these guys are wow. fast, but the CBs were faster. Were they brown bears or the grizzly bears up there? What do you know? You know, I, I think they're probably brown bears. They could be called grizzly bears at time, but I think the brown bears are probably the Kodiak grizzly or something like that. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, did he get out of the illusions okay? Yeah, he did. Um, you know, he came home and um, you know moved back to Detroit or you know thereabouts and. <laughs> You know, it's still cold up there, so he was happy, but he just wasn't sweating bullets like he was down in the South Pacific. <laughs> All right, now, uh, your mom was in the United States Marine Corps, 
That's right. When did your fa- uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. But real quickly, where did your father and mother meet? You know, I think it was like a, a, a blind date, and maybe ninety four, ninety five. Um, excuse me, forty four and forty five, and um, oh, um, I don't know. They probably just enjoyed the fact that they were both in the military together, and uh, you know, they had tales to tell, and you know, it just blossomed out from there to. Um, you know, where they decided you know, they enjoyed their company enough to get married, and uh, <laughs> so they did. And they hung in the whole time. Um, in fact, I think my dad passed away just short of a a year or two of their 50th anniversary that was coming up. Oh. Yeah, your your mom was a beautiful lady. Uh, she and was. She was 100% Marine Corps, I know that. Uh, um, yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. She's yeah. She, one of the most... Uh, uh, unforgettable interviews I ever had with a lady, and uh, we're going to get to her in just a minute, Dan. We're going, to, we're going to our first break, and we'll be back with your mother, Dorothy, the United States Marine in World War II. Folks, stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello. My name is Colonel Retired Rick White, a United States Army veteran, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I would like to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. If you are a Georgia veteran, and the Georgia veteran's definition is you were either born in this state or you lived in the state 10 years or you raised your right hand and joined the military in the state of Georgia, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to your website at www.gmvhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. Nominations need to be in by the last Friday in August each year. Again, if you're a Georgia veteran or you're a friend or family member of a Georgia veteran, living or deceased, please consider nominating that veteran to this highly noble and rare Hall of Fame for our great state. Thank you so much. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion on America's Web Radio? Just email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll get back to you. Thank you. Very good, David. Folks, we're back with uh, Dan Turner. We're going to talk about his mother now. We just talked about his father. His mom was a lady Marine, and lordy me, was she a Marine. Dan, your mom grew up the daughter of a teamster truck driver. Tell us a little bit about your mom's childhood. Well, she was a ball of fire, and, um, you know, she had four boys, and... 
you know, she could still outrun us. She could still outclimb any tree. We tried to get away. It was hopeless. Um, <laughs> and she probably grew up the same way because her, her mother was about the same way as she was. Um, as she got into the dating stage, um, she'd go out with her buddies juking and, uh, you know, they go to a truck stop or so, and by the time she got home, she was already in trouble because some other trucker had gone in there and contacted the union or, you know, called um, my grandfather directly. Said, Paul, we, we saw Dorothy at the truck stop, and, you know, she was dancing it up and having a good time, and I don't know, she may have been drinking a beer. So, um, like I said, she was always uh, in a little bit of trouble because there were just too many truck drivers running around, and they're all teamsters. <laughs> then, uh... uh your mother wanted to join the Marines before World War II. What did your dad say about that, or your grandfather? Yeah, my grandfather said, well, I think is what couldn't what he said it probably couldn't be used here, but it was basically <laughs> no. Basically, you know, just said, no, you know, we don't want you to do that, but, you know, then Pearl Harbor came about, and before she went home and said, I'm going to join the Marine Corps, she'd already gone out and joined. Uh-huh. And what did your grandfather say about that? There wasn't a whole lot to be said. Um, they recognized that she had a mind of her own and made up her mind and gone in. And, you know, they knew that worst-case scenario, she'd, um, she'd be bored to death because they weren't sending her where the action was as much as um, she was given little jobs to do that kind of, you know, had to be done. But... Um, they had to train the lady Marines, you know, some of the techniques and tricks of the trade for doing things like welding. Uh, that was her job pretty much was uh, plumbing and welding everything together that was necessary. She could probably put, uh, she probably have drilled a hole or arc welded or, you know, burned any piece of metal that you could think of or any classification or type or hardness of metal you could think of over the years and uh, did very well with that. She was a, pretty well prepared for that before she went into the Marines, wasn't she? She had some education on that just by hanging around whenever my grandfather would take one of his trucks in for service. Um, I think she was probably one to crawl underneath the trucks with the guys to see what was there and crawl underneath the hood to see what was in there, too. So <laughs> I can't say she was a tomboy, but again, uh, you know, she was a Marine. And uh, when it she came time to yeah, she had four boys to take care of and a daughter later, and then all the other guys in the neighborhood, the uh, subdivision that my dad had put in, um, you know, I think each one of us, and there's probably 20 or 30 guys in the neighborhood, we had our, you know, we had our day with the Sam Brown belt and her. And, um, <laughs> you know, we may have dis disliked getting beat and uh, towed off and, you know, maligned and embarrassed in front of the community, but... You know, these guys I run into all the time that uh, online for the different alumni groups that I belong to for our schools in the area of DeKalb County, uh, you know, if you talk about any mother's, anybody's mother, she's the one that comes up to the top because <laughs> everybody loved her, even though they, you know, <laughs> they, they face discipline from her all the time. Uh, she didn't cut any punches, and she, uh, you know, she told it like it was. Yeah, tell tell the story about your mom in boot camp and her uh, DI. Oh, um, I learned a long time ago. There's one thing I never would do was go in there and wake my mother up from a sound sleep, and that was because uh, if you grabbed her foot, 
uh, you'd wind up losing some teeth because she would kick out. If you try to tap her on the shoulder, you'd lose the rest of your teeth because she, <laughs> she, she'd hit you with a fist, and it wasn't that she was doing it out of being ornery. Um, it was a condition she had, and it was pretty well written up in her report that, uh, you know, do not wake this person, you know, by hand. And this is what the DI did wrong, was not read that report for her application for health. And uh, I guess uh, went over to shake her awake and wound up getting cold cocked. Um, I think uh, they already had all the paperwork together in order to have her court-martialed, and um, they were able to produce that one document that showed, you know, this is something you don't do, and that was the only thing that kept her from getting... You know, <laughs> booted out of the Marine Corps. So it'd be bad to have a mother who is too bad, to, you know, too badass to be a Marine. So <laughs> she, uh, she absolutely, she knocked out the DI, right? Absolutely, put him out. <laughs> oh my gosh! Um, what your your mother was in Marines, and I know she loved it and everything. Did she ever tell you too much or a lot about during her service, and, and if she? enjoyed her time in the Marine Corps? Oh, she did. Um, she said it was a, a discipline that everybody had to endure. Uh, there were jobs that had to be done. Everybody dealt with the jobs. It was a different era, different work ethic, and, uh, you know, than we have today. So, you know, a job was a job. No matter how small, no matter how dirty it might have gotten her, you know, it was a job. And uh, I, I think she really enjoyed putting her time in just uh you know, being uh, useful, and, uh, oh, the camaraderie was there. Um, she was very much someone that contributed to the uh, women's, uh, oh, the women in the military uh, monument they have in Washington, D.C., as well as she was very proud to have been one of the first to get started uh, making contributions to the Toys for Tot program, which she contributed for the entirety of the program, all the way up to uh, her passing. Uh, yeah. In fact, my sister, uh, my sister Cheryl's taken over that job. She's the director oh, really? of uh, Toys for Tots up in the uh, in the Blue Ridge area. That's great. That is absolutely great. Uh, we're going to jump just a little bit ahead with your mom's story, but uh, you had moved to Atlanta, and y'all were down at uh, the Biltmore Hotel in Peachtree, I believe. And tell tell about the. Uh, her taking her four boys for a walk. <laughs> well, I, I think when Dad came down here and, you know, had already made arrangements through his buddy Charles, um, Charles found him a place at the Biltmore that uh, would accommodate us while we were here. And, um, oh, you know, Dad was out and about. He had the car. And um, so Dorothy had to do something to, to kind of calm us down. By calming down meant he had to wear us out. And... Um, there was two boys walking. I was barely walking. I was just over one, and my younger brother was being carried. And um, she said, come on, let's go take a walk. So my two oldest brothers, Mike and Dennis, you know, they'd walk next to her, one holding the hand, the other one holding the other one's hand, and uh, carrying my brother Richard. And uh, I always had the other hand. Uh, I like to walk fast, so I was usually leading, but, you know, when she wasn't busy trying to negotiate with everybody she was dealing with there, she walked faster than all of us. So <laughs> she was on the sidewalks of Atlanta from the Biltmore, from West Peachtree, heading all the way downtown to Central. And um, 
She said, I love the people of the South because I had all these people coming and asking, can I help you? Can I help? Can I, let me carry somebody for you? And da, 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 da. And she said, I've got this. Please, thank you. Get out of my way. Marine coming through. And, you know. <laughs> but she succeeded with that because we were slapped, wore out by the end of the day. My dad came home and, you know, like I said, we were zonked and sleeping and snoring in the next room. And uh, so they didn't have to tend to us much at all because, like I said, we were just knocked out. She put a couple miles in, didn't even work up a sweat, which was her, which was her wine life. <laughs> she, uh, when I interviewed her, she, uh, you were telling the story about uh, your father had a couple nightclubs. And even as a young, young man, you were a musician, been a musician all your life. Uh, he snuck you into the clubs to play the piano when you were about 12 years old. Uh, tell Nine us a years little old, bit sir. about that. Uh-huh. Nine, Nine years, years old. old. Okay, yeah. tell us a little bit about those clubs, what you did, and if you remember what your mother said during the interview. Oh, let's see. Um, yeah, I had picked up the piano and the organ pretty fast, and um, as nightclubs go, even though my dad was a home builder, he enjoyed the nightclub life that he had in Michigan. He was trying to duplicate that down here, and so the nightclubs involved real orchestras, real musicians, real entertainers, real all this. And um, when a piano was not going to show up, he'd drive all the way back home to where we lived at, where covered in the highway in 285 is now, before 285, and pick me up by going around to the back of the house and throwing a rock against her window and my window would wake me up, and he'd just say, come on, boy, we got stuff to do. And, you know, <laughs> you put your Sunday clothes on. And, um, you know, so I got dressed up. We snuck around the back, got in the car, and drove back down to the clubs. And I'd sit in for a, two or three or four sets, um, you know, until they closed the doors at 3 o'clock. But, um, <laughs> yeah, my, my mother never found out until, you know, I was able to outdistance her and running. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, my dad says, you know, don't tell her because you know, she'd kill you, then she'd kill me. One or the other would be first, you know, but like I said, both of us would be dead, so don't tell her anything. You know, be careful what you say. Uh, if it was a Friday night, you know, I'd wake up the next morning because I had music theory classes to go to. So I'd be sitting there falling asleep during music theory. And uh, if it was on a Saturday night, I'd still have to get up and put up my Sunday best and go to church and fall asleep during church. So I was a sleepy guy on the weekends. <laughs> I remember uh, you were telling that story and said, yeah, my dad's, my, my dad's nightclubs, nightclub this. And your mother spoke up and said, they weren't nightclubs, they were damn hoochie-coochie joints. <laughs> I hated um, those things. <laughs> she did indeed. Uh, she didn't care for that stuff at all, but... Um, she tolerated it, and, uh, you know, like I said, she never found out until later in life, whereas we were able to sit back and laugh about it, whereas earlier in life, you know, she would have slapped me across the head. So, uh, you know, like I said, we had a good laugh about that later on. You, uh, you uh, the local school there, if they had a problem disciplining the boys, they called your mother to come down to the school and take tell us that story. Well, my good friends at Glen Haven Elementary, if you're listening, um, we had a U-shaped school, and uh, two wings had windows on all sides, but you had a little courtyard in the middle, and uh, one day a, a, an assistant came in to take over for a prince, uh, for one of the teachers that was sick, and uh, 
the sub came crying to the principal later in the morning that uh, you know, she couldn't control the class. They were out of hands, and the Turner boys and his friends were to blame. And um, he said, nah, I'll handle this. So he got on the phone, and you know, Dorothy, picked, my mother picked up, and he said, Dorothy, your boys are at it again. He said, I'll be right there. And, you know, like within, by the time he hung the phone up, she was there because we lived about a block away. And he said, what room? Just down the hallway, second door on the right. So she went down there and said, all right, you, 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 you. And, um, you know, got all those guys up, took them out in the middle of the courtyard between the two wings of the school and administered corporal punishment <laughs> <laughs> in front of the entire school uh, to all these guys, two of them belong, you know, two of them belong to him or her, rather, and uh, the rest of them were just neighborhood kids that, you know, got caught up in the same amount of trouble, and, you know, whereas it would probably be jail time now, uh, really, back at the time, uh, the response was, you know, you know, if Miss Dorothy had to take a belt to you, she had a reason to do it, you know, whatever she says goes, so... Uh, you know, she was well respected around the neighborhood because she took care of a lot of the uh, the problematic children in the neighborhood, including her own. Uh, I know she did. A great, great lady. Right. Uh, folks, we're going to our second break. We'll be right back with my good buddy Dan Turner. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, and the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back with my good friend Dan Turner telling about his uh, father as a CB and then his mother as a United States Marine in World II. Dan, I remember you told me a story about your mom uh, when she went to the grocery store and had you kids in line at the, the checkout stand or whatever, and, and if there were rowdy kids, what'd she, what did she do? If someone oh, else's rowdy. kids got rowdy? Well, if, if it was a kid that was on its own, uh, my mother would just take care of it right then and there as she would 
you know, stare down was usually good enough for most of that. Uh, <laughs> it was some lady or mother, a young mother that didn't know how to control their child. Um, you know, though they had this habit of going up and said, ma'am, if you want me to, if you can't control that child, I'll control that child for you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I can't remember but a couple of times where somebody took her up on that, but they were pretty unruly. Uh, like I said, somebody just had had a, a very tiring day, and uh, or the mom was really tired and just didn't have the energy in order to take care of some of the issues going on. And so Dorothy was happy to stand in. Um, she had a technique about that, and uh, usually, you know, you only had three ways to answer her, and any question was yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, and no excuse, ma'am. And um, <laughs> her way of doing things was uh, she required the respect that she was giving you while she was addressing you, and if you gave her anything less than that, God Almighty, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it would be fast, it would be furious, but it would be over with quickly. So <laughs> I, I remember uh, at the nursing home, a uh, Marine Corps, group came out to a nursing home and they did a replica presentation of the Marines raising the flag on Iwo Jima. And your mother was out there watching and uh, there was a young reporter there, a young female reporter, and she tapped your mother on the shoulder and said, ma'am, I understand that you were a Marine. And your mother cut her eyes up at that young girl and said, young lady, I am a Marine. I, I thought that young girl was going to faint. <laughs> What's well, the truth? Yeah, Dan, uh, your your brother Barry, he went into the Marines in '66. Uh, tell us a little bit about going to uh, boot camp uh, to see your brother graduate. Well, Paris Island was where he was at, and um, I remember we drove a long ways to get to Beaufort, spend the night in Beaufort, and be there in order for the ceremonies the next day, and. Um, Oh, the one thing I recall about uh, Paris Island, besides being, you know, miserably hot, it smelled. I mean, <laughs> it was like a pulpwood factory. Uh, I guess it was just a swamp, but I just said, yeah, these guys have got this for this length of time here. Whoa, it's got to be rough. And um, But I also enjoyed the architecture for Paris Island, such as it was for the... Uh, Oh, the different courses necessary, the, uh, the roughing courses and all the other things that are put together in order to get these guys up and over some over the walls and up and down the, the different tree ladders and such. And um, always stuck with me as something I enjoyed uh, working with for arch- out exterior architecture, uh, something that you would find like at Bert Adams Boy Scout camp. And uh, yeah. But um, I do recall we parked next to a mess. Uh and we climbed out of the vehicle and, you know, starting to walk toward the uh, the ceremony grounds. And I guess his D.I. was bringing his group out, and he was, you know, he was coloring the air, as it were. And, um, I mean, profanity was pretty explicit. He turned around and saw my mother and says, I'm sorry, man, pardon me. And she said, that's all right. I'm a Marine. I've heard better than that, you son of a bitch. <laughs> But she has, she had heard better, and she could, she could talk better than that too. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, but, uh, go ahead and tell us a little bit about uh, Michael Berry. Okay, Michael was a good boy, I mean, a good man, and um, he's the elder brother. Um, 
he would take his fishing. He would take his on the road with him. Um, on the road with him was riding around a little Corvair. But we always had a good time because we were just brothers having a good time in his Corvair riding around the rules of uh, the middle part of Georgia and such. Uh, he was an Eagle Scout. He ordered the arrow and got all these things together at the uh, Bert, Adams Boy, Bert Adams Boy Scout camp. Um, decided after he got out of high school that um, he wanted to do at least a tour service. Uh, I think my dad was already working toward uh, trying to bring my brother Mike in because Mike was thinking about uh, architectural design work. And um, was already starting to draw things up. We had a little drafting table that uh, he was using, and um, he decided to go ahead and join up and did so. And um, like I said, he came back home, spent a little time with family, some of his friends, some of his girlfriends, and uh, uh, took off for Pendleton and points there beyond. Um, but he was a good man. All right. He uh, flew into the main and uh, just about flew right into Tet 68. Tell us about uh, tell us about his service in Vietnam. What little I've got is pretty well relevated uh, to that one picture I found. Um, it's, I'm glad you found that too. By the way, uh, I sent it to you some time back. But it's it was him next to the Citadel Wall there in the Way the Battle Way City. Mm-hmm. I could tell it was Way City just because of the architecture of the, the type of bricks were being used for that particular wall. They were, uh, they were non-conforming to other brickwork. And, um, you know, Mike looked disheveled. He looked like he'd been sleeping out in the mud for a week or two. Um, oh, he had the bandolero of uh, rounds on both shoulders strapped around diagonally across. He was carrying his, his weapons and... Uh, uh, he was carrying the ammunition for the the BAR that was walking behind him, and the guy walking behind him carrying the BAR had a smoke, and uh, he was smiling the whole time because Mike was having to hump all that stuff. The new guy, and um, I don't think Mike shirked away from anything ever that I've known him of, uh, and uh, you know he did that um, just because he was told to do that, and yeah. Like I said, he went in as a Marine knowing full well what he was going to end up having to do, and, uh, you know, he was all for that. So, like I said, he was uh, given the directive, and he followed through to the end. And he was there He was there less than a week uh, before what happened? Um, he was leading point and um, walked into a sniper trap and uh, in the crosshairs of somebody that, you know, took him out with one shot. It was a, a head wound, so I, I'm sure that he didn't suffer. But, uh, you know, it's one of these things that always makes me curious because it's something I'll never know. Yeah. And he was there less than a week. Just there a week. Wow. Uh, I, I look at that photo every once in a while just to remind me of the sacrifices our, our boys made over there. Thank God I made it home and a lot of us did, but we always, always remember our brothers and sisters who did not make it home. But Dan, uh, you have a very, very different perspective on this. Tell us about the, the day that uh, the pastor and uh, two Marines showed up at your door. Well, 
You know, it was a, it was a pretty Saturday morning. I remember that. So it was brisk, um, sun shining. I wasn't too far away from getting myself out the door and doing what I enjoyed doing outside. We had plenty of woods across the street to go, you know, hang around in. And, um, oh, I just remembered I was just finishing up. I was sitting in our home, which, you know, was a, a little bit of a farmhouse. It had a nice big front porch that went all the way across, a screened-in porch with a gable on top. And... Uh, so when you came on the porch, you're actually looking in the windows uh, to see the living room where our TVs and such were. And uh, so as I was finishing up watching television, I heard the screen door pull to or slam and uh, looked up and I saw the pastor, Pastor Kinsler from St. Stephen's Lutheran Church at that time. And uh, behind him were two guys in blue. And I said, geez, um, you know, I was military son. I knew what was going on, and um, I was hoping for the best that they were there just to, to bring positive news about something, but I could tell the look in my pastor's face that, you know, it's probably the last thing he wanted to do that day. So I opened up the door, and uh, Pastor Kinsler asked me, you know, if my folks were here, and I said, no, my dad is not, but mother's here, and I believe she's on the phone. And, you know, would you mind going to get her? And I said, well, sure. And, uh, you know, walked into the next room where the master bedroom was. And um, you know, she was on the phone. And I just said, Mom, you know, you've got somebody here to see you. She said, can he wait? And I just wanted past her. And uh, she said, okay, I'll, I'll call you back, whoever that was. And, uh, uh, you know, I led the way out the door, and she came out behind me. And, uh uh, she saw the Marines and saw the pastor and uh, <clears throat> knew exactly what was going on. So, uh, you know, it's, she did the unusual. She, um, you know, she didn't fall to the ground crying. Um, she came up swinging. She was out to kill those two Marines. And, uh, she, you know, what she said, you know, it's just too early. You know, she he just left. It's, it's too soon. This is not possible. You know, and... They're trying to hold her down, hold her back, and she started throwing things around and, you know, throwing stuff across the room. And, uh, you know, the one thing that broke the, t- the, the tension was that she picked up one of the covers the Marine had put down. and uh, The Marine hat, was, yeah. The Marine hat was getting ready to throw that against the wall or into the next room or out the door or something like that. And he said, ma'am, ma'am, please don't. I just paid $50 for that hat. And it was just funny enough that it stopped what was going on, and that's when she, you know, that's when she melted to the floor. So from that point on, I was there for as long as I could, and I was told to see if I could locate my dad and got him on the phone, and it was time for me to leave for a while. Yeah. All right, we're going to come right back that to to, uh, to that, Dan. Thank you for this story. Uh, folks, sure. we'll be right back. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. 
This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion on America's Web Radio? Just email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll get back to you. Thank you. Okay, folks, we're uh, back with Dan Turner talking about his uh, older brother got killed in Vietnam. Uh, been there about a week. Uh, Dan, you were about 15 at the time. That's as right. A young teenager. Yeah, as a young teenager, what were your thoughts? Uh, you know, you get the news that your big brother had been killed in less than a week in Vietnam. What, what did you think as a young teenager? Well, at first, I was damn well ready to go do the same thing Dorothy did, was join the Marines, because payback was the first thing I had in mind. Yeah. Um, because I was 15. Um, didn't really have a way to get where I needed to be, but, you know, it, it was one of these things. It was, uh, you know, I've had all these years, really, to, to sit back and reflect, sit back and observe, and... Uh, you know, I guess one of the things I observed was that when it comes down to it, when the word got out about Mike's death, that uh, you know, the community jumped right in in order to take care of this family. Uh, which, you know, was commendable here. But it was, then again, it was 1968, and it was a relatively small town, or, you know, DeKalb County in 1968. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, became apparent that my dad was working toward Mike taking over his business and such and uh, it, it, within the year or so it became apparent that you know dad was leaning on me uh, and I was number three in line to uh, you know start applying myself in order to be able to take over when the time came for him to retire because he did he had the nightclubs as well as the construction business at a hotel and commercial and residential property around the Mitchell area to deal with and uh, so I kind of had it in mind to go ahead and put my time in but when I told them of my intentions I was asked if I would not and there's a one law that I've always tried to observe and you know it goes back a long ways and that's you know honor thy mother and father so um, you know I chose to stay back and be an observer, but I'm also very much a helper. Um, I've, you know, been out to the cemetery every year since 1968 for Memorial Day weekend. and have put out an arrangement for first one headstone in, in 87 after my dad passed away. My dad was able to uh, find a... Uh, a good ear at Marietta National Cemetery to get the place right next to my brother's so that he could be laid next to him at the cemetery. And uh, so we started with two wreaths, and then my mother's passing here in uh, 2011. Now we take three wreaths out there. And uh, over the years, my observation has been, you know, just human nature. Uh, people die. Um, they move away. These guys are always going to be there. And I can recall many Memorial Day weekends driving through and just riding around after putting the, the reef out that in most cases, ours was usually the only 
you know, color going out there. It was, you know, really, you know, my dad would moan and groan and bitch about how there was nobody that would come out to see these guys anymore. It was just, you know, not correct. And uh, he said, don't ever let that lapse. You know, I don't want you to miss it. I said, well, I'm not. And I haven't yet. Um, things have gotten better. Dan, the- Dan, Dan you, I hate to interrupt you, but you gave me a statement one time. I asked you the things, I guess mellow out's not the right word, but you never will forget, for, uh, forget. but, you know, time does move on. And you gave me a statement that I thought was very interesting. You said that as time passed, I got over uh, Mike a little bit and realized that Michael was doing what he wanted to do and what he was trained to do. And then you said, so was the sniper. Uh, That's correct. They were two-minute yeah, two war. And uh, Michael ended up on the wrong end. Well, I mean, it could have been the other way around. and um, But it was, it was just Mike's lot in life at that time was that... Um, he was a target rather than the shooter. And, um, you know, it's, it's an unfortunate thing, but, um, you know, these guys go into the core with the idea that they're going to go into peril, yeah. which is the infuriating part of the whole thing with politics is now, just like we talked the other evening, that, uh, you know, the politicians would keep their, their nose out of these things that, uh, you know, we could win these wars. Yeah, we could we could pretty well take care of what's got to be done, but we got so many cowards that are elected to position that uh, in order to try and maintain a semblance of uh, uh, you know, electability to their constituency, uh, they take the easy route, the cowards way out, and uh, oh, they're the first ones to talk against the police, they're the first ones to talk down against the the, the, the military, they're the first ones, you know, like Tom Golden. Uh, yeah, I think you and I first met in person after we started a drive in order to bring coffee out on his third deployment or fourth deployment uh, to Afghanistan. And uh, when he got there, Obama had pretty well, you know, ramped down everything uh, with regards to troops uh, out in the middle of you know out in the middle of nowhere facing the enemy that was all over the place. And these guys had brought out these. Uh, you know, these pretty expensive pieces of equipment uh, in order to fly around in, but they're basically, you know, they're given hand-me-down coffee grounds and decaffeinated coffee and expected to go flying around for, uh, you know, the entire day on just the minimum amount of uh, sustenance. Uh, you know, it's just crazy what, you know, I, I guess I've taken off of trying to um, find uh, justice for Mike's passing. Yeah. And to trying to uh, illuminate that, you know, the worst thing we've got are electics that refuse to acknowledge, you know, that the guys are at point. The guys that are walking into the gunfire, the here and abroad, uh, you know, need our total support. Uh, it's just, you know, it's beyond belief. You, I, I remember the statement you made the other day. You know, we, we went to Vietnam for one purpose, and that was to fight communism. And communism now has found its way in here, welcomed in as it is. I mean, there's yeah. some conclaves around the country that, you know, the only reason they get elected is because they take over a particular uh, voting district by majority. So they get their toes in, and they continue to build up on that to where we have people like 
oh, uh, what's her name, Ishad, Talat Ishad, uh, the one that made the statement yesterday about the, sh- the unfortunate shooting. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, the officer pulled the weapon out, was hoping that she had the taser. In fact, she was yelling taser when she used the weapon because she mistakenly picked up the wrong uh, grip. Yeah. And, you know, she just flat out said that this was a done on purpose. And it's all racist and all the same old stuff. And, uh, you know, some of these letters are what's the results of what, you, you know, happens when, you, when you, you put lipstick on a pig. They're still the same things. They're just communists. And yeah. they're trying to do away the, the system that all these guys went to war for, like you went to war, in order to preserve our way of life here. And they're trying to make over a way of life that they left someplace else to come here in order to <laughs> do what they wanted here. It's yeah. it's beyond belief. I know what it is. Dan, tell us uh, um, tell us a little bit about the funeral for, for your big brother, Michael. It was huge. Um, we had permission from the governor at the time before the uh, <clears throat> 285 was opened up. It was underway. It was under construction. But we had storm coming in. It was a cold, wet, wintry day. And uh, I just remember we were at Turner's Funeral Home, uh, you know, in DeKalb County off of North Decatur Road, and the entourage was just, I don't know, five miles long, and we all got on 285 and zoomed around, and I was like the second car behind the hearse, and um, I just remember getting off to 75, uh, heading north to Marietta, and uh, I saw a couple of sailors, their duffel bags over their shoulders, they were hitchhiking up 75, and they were trying to get out of the way of uh, the storms, too, and... uh, you know, they they heard the uh, they they heard the vehicles coming, and they heard the flags are flapping. They turned around and saw that, and they all they snapped too. You know, as cold as it, miserable as it was, as raining and snowing as it was, they snapped too, and they held that probably for the entire processional. I mean, it was, it was just one of the many things I remember. It was just an observation, but it it never went away. These guys uh, were there for each other whether they're alive or dead. Total respect. Tell us about the uh, Marietta National Cemetery. How, what was it like that day? Uh, it was packed. I mean, people were having to park along the streets outside in order to be able to walk to where the service was. And, you know, there was no moaning or groaning or griping. It, was, it just wasn't necessary. We were all there and they were there, the community was there to support the family and, uh, you know, and honor the dead. Um, and, you know, as we kept coming back, one thing I will note that uh, the Marion National Cemetery is now owned by the Park Service, and it's no longer the, the old decrepit cemetery it was, I guess, uh, back in 68. It's like a park now. I mean, it's barefoot quality grass all the way around. Everything's maintained all the time. The trees that had to be trimmed and arbored down, uh, things are just perfect. Uh, it's just a great little place. I expect to go out Memorial Day, and I hope the Boy Scouts will join us this year. I know they had to uh, abandon last year because of events. Yeah. But um, last year was a little bit different. Uh, we were the only color out there except for the the flags that are flapping up on the poles, which they do put out for everything, but the miniature flags that go out for each one of the headstones was not longer there. So... I hope things change this year. Well, hope so. 
God bless Michael. Um, Dan, uh, I know you could talk on for an hour. I'd love to hear your opinions and everything, but give, give us some final thoughts on, on Vietnam, uh, even what's going on today. The floor is yours, sir. Well, there's not a lot to say. It's the same old dribble. That, you know, like I say, as long as we elect people who are eager to uh, worry about staying elected rather than doing their job, uh, we will always have these problems. Uh, we will always have somebody breaking through the barrier. Um, I mean, the best thing we could do is, you know, pack some of these folks up and send them to where the front is so they can actually see what's going on for themselves personally rather than just read about it and make an opinion about it. Um, you know, as long as they're going to sit on their ass and not do anything more than, uh, you know, rule the roost from <laughs> their, their cushy job with their cushy uh, security force marching around them at all times. And, um, you know, we're not going to get any better. Like I said, we just have to get rid of the riffraff, the ones that have gone in, find a way to get rid of those that are taking over and taking control, and put us back in the course we have been going on for the last few hundred years. I mean, it's just, there's no other way in order for us to sustain. And as for Vietnam... I'd love to go there one day. I'd really love to go there. I'd love to go to Guadalcanal, do it all in one trip, and uh, see what my dad saw and see what my brother saw. You know, you mentioned uh, your dad came home on a boat, had time to, uh, uh, I guess, get some things off the boat coming home. <laughs> what, what, like that, was it like that for us? Well, unfortunately, you guys got on before you even got the boots. You got the dust off your boots. You were back home, and... Uh, when they hopped aboard a, a, a boat in order to carry out the, you know, the guys off the Guadalcanal, um, you know, it, it took about two weeks to get from point A to point B before they offloaded everybody. So they had two weeks in order to drink it over, think it over, fight it over, play enough poker to shame you. You know, like I said, if, if, uh, it was a different time. And um, they should always take things like, being in one spot and coming back home and yep. so I know Dan we got to go thank you so much okay. absolutely I know you but you are the good son thank you for uh, sharing this story with us folks join us next week we're going to have a fascinating program thanks to my friend Dan Turner see you later had a good time thank you're you, listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com thank you for listening